Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Celine, week 23 of this Revelation series. And might I add, the last week of this season of this Revelation series. Yes, we have finally made it through this, this season. And I, I can remember when I decided to do this. It's like back in, I don't know, March or April of this year. And it was uh, a time when I was knee deep in this amazing book of Revelation. And I just wanted to share what the Lord had showed me in my studies. And, and I'm really hoping that you all have received encouragement and that your hearts have been challenged. And with that being said, let, let's, let's get this last episode underway because there is some good stuff for us here as we wrap up um, this season. And it was last week we walked through Revelation 21. We saw the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from, from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Yes, the bride of Christ, the people of God, ready to spend eternity with their God. And it says in Revelation 21, 4, that he, he would wipe every tear from their eyes, that there would be no more death and no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Sounds amazing. And yes, church, that's what we get to look forward to. Even in the, amidst all of the evil and all the darkness that we see around us, we know that this is our, our, this is our future. And as we continue and come to this final chapter in this journey through Revelation, we really want to bring our focus to some specific texts in this chapter. And if you, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you will find that we begin and end this section that we're going to study and unpack today with red letters. In other words, we begin and end with the words of, of Jesus, the words of our Lord. So it's this section that is, is bookended um, with Jesus's words. That there, there's an announcement and, and an identity of Christ. And then in the middle of it, you have the identification of the blessing of the saints and the curse of the sinners. And so this packaged all together is a picture of Christ who is the judge and the effect of the judgment that he brings. The effect of the judgment that he brings is twofold. One, it is a blessing for the righteous. And two, it is a curse or condemnation for the unrighteous. And all of it is tied up in this idea of Christ and who he is. And in both cases, this identification is absolutely crucial. And that's why it comes at the beginning and the end of this picture. And two things I want to point out about this text. First, that the identity of the two groups is contingent on their relationship with Jesus. It's what makes these people who they are. It's what makes them what they are. It's their relationship to Christ. So there's a reference here to their deeds. However, their deeds are a direct result to their relationship or lack thereof to Christ or, or the nature of their relationship to Christ. Because guys, let's be honest, everyone has a relationship with Jesus. You know, you hear people say all the time, you know, do you, do you ha have a personal relationship with Jesus? Guys, you don't have to ask anyone that question. The answer is always yes. We all have a relationship with Christ. For some, he, he's our deliverer. For others, he, he's, he's our judge. And in both cases, it is a relationship. And in both cases, guys, it's personal. 
Second point, Jesus' authority to reward and judge is contingent on his identity. So again, in both instances, his identity is central. First of all, his identity is central because that is how we identify who these, uh, these people are and to which group they belong. It is based on their relationship with him. Second of all, his ability and authority to judge is linked to who he is. Both of those things are important uh, as we look at this passage of scripture. And so jumping right in to Revelation 22, we're going to start at verse 12 and we're going to get down through, through verse 16 by the end of this episode as we wrap up this journey. So let's start Revelation 22 verse 12 through 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Guys, this is a powerful, powerful statement. In this statement, we see a picture of who Christ is. He he identifies himself clearly at both the beginning and the end of the statement. I mean, look at his identity in the first part as, as the judge comes. I mean, here... Here's how we, we can view Revelation 22, 12 through 16. The judge walks in and it's all rise, the honorable Jesus Christ presiding. And he comes to his bench and he is identified as he comes to the bench. And then judgment is passed. And then after judgment is passed, it's all rise again and he departs simply. So we, we see here first as Jesus enters the courtroom, we see he is the judge of the world. And we see some things that we must point out about his judgment. And three things that I found. Starting to number one, his judgment is imminent. We, we've talked about this before. And it's almost ironic that we say this because it's been almost 2,000 years. But his judgment is imminent. And when we think about Jesus' imminent judgment, we cannot think of it in terms of our own understanding. We, we don't think of it in terms of the way that we count time. Again, we think, um, we think of Peter's statement. Remember when he said, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? Well, that's quite appropriate here. We need to understand, guys, God is not bound by time. So when we say it's imminent, what we mean is it could be at any time. It was true then when John wrote this letter and it's true now. And, And should the Lord wait another thousand years, it will still be true. The Lord could come at any time. But you and I, we don't know when that time is which again has been stated here earlier in other chapters. And we see this picture of Jesus coming as a thief, but his coming is imminent. But there, there is another sense in which we understand the imminence of Christ's return in this uh, regard, because as the judge, all of us could die at any moment. And in that moment, we're, we're going to face Jesus either as our redeemer or as our judge. So while this is talking about the broader reality at the end of age, there is also a sense for every one of us that, this is but a heartbeat away. I mean, this judgment is happening soon. And that, that's part of the idea here. I mean, part of the idea of this particular set of statements is that we would examine our hearts. So we would examine ourselves, our lives. I mean, here we're coming to the close of the letter and it's time for us to recognize that, guys, this is not just an academic exercise. This has been communicated for a reason. And the reason is the judgment is imminent, but both in terms of Christ, who could come at any moment, And also in terms of the fact that you and I could meet God at any moment. Guys, again, it's only a heartbeat away. So the question we ask ourselves, are you and I ready to meet him? I mean, 
I don't know about you, but the thought of meeting Jesus, it, it, it causes me to tremble. It's a terrifying thought. Not from the standpoint, I feel like I'm going to be judged by him or, you know, I'm saved. I'm secure. I'm in, he is my Lord and savior. But the thought of meeting the God of the universe and being in his presence, it causes me to tremble. Okay. Next thing about his judgment, his judgment is warranted. Okay. So Jesus says, I'm bringing my recompense. What is recompense? Well, the Greek word that's used here is some, sometimes translated as wages. Other times it's translated as um, payment or reward. So Jesus says he's coming and he's bringing his payment with him. We've already seen that individuals will be judged according to what they do, according to what they've done, according to their deeds. And I'm always telling the world that our works matter. But it's more than that, though. It's not just that our works matter. It's not just about our deeds. Because again, in order for a deed to be righteous, it has to be the right thing done the right way for the right reasons. And if you do the right thing, but you don't do it the right way, you don't do it for the right reasons, then it's not right. All of what we do must be done with motives that are pure and unselfish and God-honoring and God-glorifying. Guys, we must never do anything with a motive of elevating ourselves. And we must remember that God knows what we do, when we do it, and why we do it. We, we cannot fool him. We, we may fool people, but we don't fool God. We can't do anything thinking God owes us anything. We cannot believe that because of our good deeds, God owes us entrance into, the, into his kingdom. This makes us selfish, okay? If it is not the right thing done the right way for the right reasons, which by the way, the only right reason is the glory and honor of God, then it's sinful. And another way to say this is that which is not of faith is sin. So when we say that there is a reward for deeds, understand that we're not talking here in terms of a scorecard where certain deeds are worth certain points and at the end, points are added up because the fact of the matter is, apart from Christ, you, you have no score. In other words, no matter how many good deeds you do on this earth, if there is no heart connection with Jesus, you're lost. The next thing about his judgment. His judgment is individual. Notice he is paying each one of us or each one for what they've done. He's going to pay each one of us for what we've done. It is individual, okay? Everyone's judgment is individual. Every one of us will stand before God and be judged individually. I just said that three different ways. This is important for us to grasp, guys. As parents, here's the deal. We must understand that we, we can't be righteous for our children. Okay, as children, we must understand that our parents can't be righteous for us. But it's also important for us to understand that the other way, our children can't be unrighteous for us and our parents can't be unrighteous for us. There is not a sense in which God will judge us for what others have done. I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. We, we will be judged um, based upon our own actions and upon our own attitudes, um, upon our own words, our own deeds. Guys, you and I have to answer to Jesus individually. You and I have to stand before his throne. And when you and I stand before God, it's not going to be like judgment in our understanding. Okay, because judgment in our understanding isn't always right. You notice that sometimes people are just, they're let off the hook. Even when they've wronged others, people get away with murder, literally. 
And see, the way we think about justice is so incredibly clouded. I mean, we, we, we constantly blame our environment. We, we blame our upbringing. We, we blame our circumstances. And I'll tell you, I'm guilty. I spent a lot of my life blaming my environment, blaming my upbringing, blaming my parents for the way that I lived. And a lot of people pitied me for it because my past was so broken and so jacked up. But here's the truth. And this is what I realized when I came to Christ. When you stand before God, the the questions will not be like, Jesus isn't going to, well, you know, Selene, did you have the right parents? I mean, did you, did you have the right upbringing? Did you have the right environment? Well, you know what? Since you grew up in the hood and you grew up in a really bad situation, I'm going to let you slide. Um, guys, that, that's not going to be the way it's going to be. That's not the question. When you sin, when I sin, it's because we're sinners. That's why we sin. And the fact of the matter is the reason that, uh, that the environment, the reason the world works on us and affects us is because of our own sinful desires. You ever notice how even when we're blaming our environment, I mean, the environment can only make us go so far. Guys, the, the reality is we all have different sinful di- desires inside of us. I mean, for some, you know, it's, it's abuse of alcohol. For some, it's porn. For some, it's gambling. For some, it's gluttony. For some, it's adultery. And, and this has more to do with who we are as sinners and less to do with the environment that we're raised in. Yes, we can easily blame our childhood. But if we want to be brutally honest, we, we know it's wrong and we can make a decision to turn to Jesus and change it. We need to understand that it's not like we're morally neutral and then the environment comes in and turns us into sinners. The fact of the matter is we're sinful and the environment only gives us opportunities to express our sinfulness. I mean, the things that we like and the things that we crave, that the things that we, we long for, we run after them. The things that we don't, we don't think about. But we don't avoid those things because we hold some power over sin. I mean, you think about the man that, that can walk by the drink. Doesn't walk by because he's good. That's just not his thing. That's not, his, that's not what hangs him up. He just has other sinful things that he desires. Again, guys, it's it's not your environment. It's not your upbringing. It's your sinfulness. It's your sin nature. And this is essential to understand the gospel. Because if I believe that my problem is my environment, well, guess what? I don't need a savior. I just need a new address. I mean, if I believe that my problem is the world, then guess what, guys? I don't need a savior. I just need to get my TV out of my house. I need to get off social media. I need to... Quit hanging out with, with worldly people. Guys, if, if, if my, my problem is my environment, then I might just need to get away from my friends and make new friends. I don't need to be born again because there's nothing wrong with me. The problem's out there. I mean, do you see how this mindset perverts our understanding of the gospel? And I'm not saying there aren't problems out there. <laughs> Guys, there is. The world is crazy. But we must understand that the reason the world is crazy is because there is a problem in our hearts. We like sin, period. And we must know that we will be judged individually for it. You and I will stand before God and answer for our words and our thoughts and our deeds. And it won't be children playing on the playground type of answers. Yeah, well, you know, he made me do it. And, you know, he hit me first. 
Guys, that is not going to suffice. No excuses will matter. We will stand before Judge Jesus and and have to answer. And it will be very black and white. And I just want to point out that we also see here in this text that Christ is the judge because he's God. You know, I have so many people that come to me either challenging me saying Jesus never said he was God or asking me for help to explain where in the scriptures Jesus said he was God. And there are many places in the Bible, but here in in the verses that we're unpacking today, there is a striking declaration that I, I need to point out. You missed it. There's a phrase used here in this passage three times. And that phrase, I am. That is a very important phrase, guys. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Then he says again, I am the alpha and the omega. Then in the last verse, verse 16, he says for a third time, I am the root and I am the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Guys, this I am phrase is important. I mean, if we turn to Exodus 3.14 and read, it says, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, sent me to you. So here we have Moses, who's essentially, he's being confronted in the wilderness by God, shaking and trembling. He asked God, you know, as God is sending him to, to Egypt, imagine going to the most powerful nation, the most powerful ruler on earth. And you're supposed to walk up and be like, hey, um, let my people go. I mean, you ain't going to want to do that. I'm not going to want to do that. But God's telling him, this is who I'm picking you to go. And so Moses asked God, who should I tell them sent me? Because they're going to look at me like you're some little scrawny old man. Like, I'm not listening to you. And God says, tell the Israelites, you know, they I am sent you. And God says this. Tell them the I am sent you. God says, my name is I am. And then we look at John 8, 56 through 59, which, which is written by the same author as, as this book of Revelation is written by. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John. Listen to what he writes. Jesus, this is Jesus talking. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw and it was glad. And so the Jews said to Jesus, dude, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. And so what the, the scripture is going to say that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So why did these guys pick up stones to, hit, to throw at Jesus? Well, because Jesus identified himself as the I am. He identified himself as God. So, so don't you ever let anyone tell you that Jesus never said he was God. And Jesus also says here in Revelation twenty two thirteen, 13, I am the alpha. I am the omega. Go back to Revelation 1.8. And remember, this is the first time we see this phrase in the Bible. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here we have the same reference used to describe Almighty God in Revelation 1 that Jesus uses to describe himself in the last words of this book. And and in case it's, it's not clear, let me plainly say, Jesus is God. Okay, he is the second person of the Trinity. There in Revelation 1, there is that identity of all of the persons of the Trinity. The identity of the Father, the identity of the Son, and the the identity of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that reiterated throughout uh, Revelation. 
And not only have we seen that, we have seen the unholy trinity, which is actually the opposite of the true holy trinity. And who's the unholy trinity? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So here we're seeing that God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. One God and three persons. One in their unity, one in their communion, one in their essence, one in their nature, but distinct in their person. So guys, Christ can judge because he is God. He is the only one who can judge because he's God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is God. And this is crucial to understand. So if people say Jesus never said he was God, tell them to go read the Bible in full and in its context. And there's no way you can do that and come away with anything different. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So now that we've established that Jesus is God and that he's worthy to judge, we see that he's able to reward the righteous. And let's point out that this is the seventh and the last beatitude of Revelation. And this is so incredibly important. This righteousness spoken of is, is um, it's alien and it's a foreign righteousness. And it's interesting. It says that Jesus has come with his recompense to reward everyone according to their deeds, according to what they've done. Well, what have these people done? Well, according to the text, it says they've washed their robes. I mean, and there's, there's one other time when we see this reference, and, and that's in Revelation 7. If you go back to Revelation 7, verse 14, it says, I said to him, sir, you know. Remember the angel had asked John, who are these people? Well, John says to the angel, uh, sir, you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. And the angel says to John, Though these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Wait. They've made their robes white in the blood of the lamb? So what, what makes their robes white? Well, it's the blood of the lamb. So what I take from this is, this is not works righteousness. This is a righteousness as a result of whose work? Of the lamb's work. And who's the lamb? It's Jesus. And what was his work? It was the atoning work of the cross. So this righteousness is not earned. This is a righteousness that is imputed. This is a... This is not righteousness that is our own. This is a righteousness that is alien and foreign. It is a righteousness that is ours because of the blood of Jesus. And what washes away our sins? The blood of Jesus. We must make no mistake here. On the day that we stand before Jesus and we're seen as righteous, it will have nothing to do with us or our effort. It'll be all about Jesus's uh, substitutionary death, which paved our way into right standing with God. That's it. It's not because we're better than anyone else. It's by God's grace that you had eyes to see Jesus. It's by God's grace that you made the decision to repent. It's by God's grace that you decided to follow Jesus with all that you have. It's, it's all Jesus. And that is who is blessed and who washed the robes. Those who trust in Christ and Christ alone. But here's the truth. And I say that it's, it's, by, by, it's by Christ's work and, and it's by his grace alone. It's, it's all Jesus. But I want to point out that our righteousness, guys, it is evident in our deeds. 
Okay? It impacts the way we live here on earth. And there's nowhere more clear than in Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It says the bride, the church, followers of Jesus have made themselves ready. They were granted fine linens, bright and pure. And the fine linens are what? They're they're righteous deeds. Those who wear white robes are those who show it in the way that they live, the way they prepare for the return of the groom. Yes, we, we live in active righteousness and we pursue holiness. And this is only possible by the grace of Jesus over your life, who empowers this kind of living by dwelling in you. Yes, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Guess what, guys? He, he resides in you. So how can we have the spirit in us and not be changed? Well, I don't even think that's the question. I think the question is if you're not changed and you're not pursuing holiness and you're not showing evidence in, in, of righteousness in your life, well, do you have the spirit in you? Challenging, I know. You may not like me. I'm asking that, but... I don't care. All I'm saying is, is this is what the text says. Bottom line is this, guys. When we have the spirit in us, our very inclinations are changed. Our desires are changed. Our perspectives are changed. All because of the finished work of Christ and his imputed righteousness. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Guys, we are righteous and that righteousness will manifest itself and will grow in in us as we actively follow the King of Kings. Guys, we will grow to despise sin increasingly as we grow in that righteousness. We'll be aware of it increasingly as we grow in that righteousness. And how do you know that you're growing in righteousness? That's a great question. I mean, the reality is this, guys. We go through phases as believers. We, We first are introduced to Christ and we're transformed and, and, we, and we look and we see the sins in our life. And they're easy to spot because it's the big sins we see, right? I mean, we see the world as black and white. And then we get to this place where we've taken care of the big sins, you know, and we're okay for a while. And then there's this, this other place that we as believers come to, another level of, of really sight. Like we begin to see things differently as we grow. And that's the place where we recognize that even though we aren't doing the big sins, we're still struggling with the same things. They're just, they're just not manifesting themselves like they used to. And all of a sudden we start thinking about the minutia of sin and, um, and it can bring us to a place of crisis. It can bring us to a real place of crisis in our hearts. And we can start to think after all this time, I'm still dirty. I'm still broken, lost and sinful. And we've been, we begin to question our salvation. It's a real place that we as believers come to because of that internal struggle. Because after all, we are all of those things. But you know what's so ironic about this? In the believer, the only reason that matters is because we're saved. Guys, I mean, I, I just, even recently, I just had people, people always coming up to me and asking me, you know, about how they struggle with their sin and what to do. And they tell me how broken they are and how much they, they mess up and how much they see their sinfulness. And they talk about how they struggle with assurance of their salvation 
And they wonder if they're even saved because of what they see in themselves. I mean, guys, they, they come and they tell me they hate the sin they see and they war against it. And at times they feel like they're losing ground. Guys, I stop them dead in their tracks and I tell them, I've heard enough to know. First, I let them know that I struggle too every single day. I struggle with more than, 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 than most, okay? And I tell them what they feel is a gift. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Or they respond, what do you mean? How can that be a gift? But there are a few things here I want to point out. I, I, I hear of the struggling. I, I, I hear about the war with your sin. And when I hear that, what that tells me is, is you are on the right side of the battle. Yes, sin does bring embarrassment. It brings shame to those who follow Christ, no doubt. But we don't need to talk about assurance of our salvation. I mean, the question I need to, I need to ask you is, who in the world makes you hate that sin? I mean, you think you can be lost and hate the sin in you? You, you think that you can be lost and at war with the sin in you? I mean, granted, we need to fight, but we must understand what side we are on as we fight. Thank God for that. Thank God that we hate our sin. Thank God that we see it even in the smallest ways. Thank God that it bothers you. Thank God that you don't want, to, you don't want it to be a part of you. Thank God for all of that. That is grace over your life. That is the grace of God in your life. Yes, we are righteous, but that righteousness increases in us as we grow, which means what? We are still sinners, but we're saved. We are saints, guys. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. The next thing we should see in this text is our righteousness is rewarded. It's rewarded. There are two things here. First, the tree of life. I mean, the first Adam was excluded from this tree. The last Adam brings us back to it. God is bringing this thing full circle. And here we have access to the tree of life. Secondly, the city. Our union with the first Adam has been transformed and we are no longer under the federal headship of the first Adam. We're under the federal headship of the last Adam, Jesus. And then the city. There is a picture of, of the city, the bride of Christ. Our union with the last Adam is finally realized. It's consummated. This is the reward. The reward is eternal life in perfect union with Jesus. And this goes back to the other issue of our constant struggle with sin as believers. You know another reason we get so upset with that? Because deep in us, because we long for things now that are meant for then, that are meant for the end of age. In other words, that day when we walk in perfect nature with Jesus, it's not meant for our time on earth now. That is a day that will come and it is not now. So for now, we live in these broken bodies, in this broken world, and, and what? We long for Jesus. What is to come is not for now. And in the age to come, we will be perfect. In the age to come, our communion with Christ will be unbroken. In the age to come, there will be no more sin in us. That is the age to come, guys. That is the age to come. So remember that. And that will help us continue to fight, but to continue to know that where we are in our brokenness and in our, in, in our sin, 
living in these broken bodies in this broken world. This is just part of it. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So here we have the punishment of the unrighteous. Notice this, all these statements about Christ returning and crushing his enemies. We have a vivid picture in Revelation 19 of this warrior who comes and judges his foes. I mean, notice how understated this verse is. There is one word that describes their judgment here. Everything else describes them. But one word describes their judgment. I mean, you got it. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But notice what it says. The word outside. That describes their judgment. That's it. That's all. One word. Outside. On one hand, we have the rewards for the committed and faithful, the tree of life, eternal life, entrance into the city, perfect communion with Jesus. Where are the foes? Where are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters? They're, They're on the outside where there is no tree. There is no communion. Justice has been served. I mean, we don't see a picture here of justice being served. We've already seen the picture of justice being served. Now we see the result of that justice being served. Christ is vindicated. These individuals are outside the gates. The wicked get what they desire and they get what they deserve. And it is always ironic to me when we talk about people who never wanted to be with Christ, who never wanted to be with Christians, who never wanted to be with the church, who die and then we say, I mean, think about this. We die and we say, They've gone to a better place. How often do you hear people say that? But have they really gone to a better place? I mean, they've gone to be with a God they wanted nothing to do with here. I mean, how does that work? These individuals never wanted God. They never wanted Christ. They wanted themselves and their own desires. That is what they were characterized by. They didn't want to be with God. And now they get what they desire and what they deserve. And based on this text, Those who rejected Christ their entire lives on this earth are now outside with the dogs. Guys, this is a terrifying place to be. That's not a better place. And I didn't say this, God did. And notice, this is a familiar list. Revelation 21.8 mirrors this list. Listen to this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And here we add the words dogs, which is in the place of detestable. Guys, this is not an exhaustive list. This list is symbolic. This, This speaks of all who are cowardly, who are faithless, who are detestable, murderers, are those who violate the horizontal commandments. Idolaters are those who violate the vertical commandments. Hear what I just said. The murderers are those who violate the horizontal. That's between us, me, and, and you, all people. And then idolaters are those who violate the vertical commandments between you and God. This list of dogs are, are all people who spent their lives living for the world and themselves essentially serving the dragon. Their place is outside the gate. And according to Revelation 21.8 is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is spiritual death. And it's eternal, guys. And I said this last time, or maybe a couple weeks back, the most horrible part about hell is getting to a place 
where you, you will live with the rest of your life knowing that you could have had Jesus. I believe that's where the anxiety and, you know, that gnashing of teeth, I think that is going, it's just, it's going to eat you alive to know that you could have had Christ and you spent your entire life pushing him away. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Finally, we hear, all rise, the verdict has been rendered. Jesus again here reiterates his deity. First, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. This early on is attributed to the father who sent his angel with a message. So here, Christ is being identified with the father. There's a couple of things being said here, guys. You've been warned. Okay, that, that's one thing it's saying. The immediate warning of revelation itself. I've sent my angel. Okay, that's the next thing he says. We, we've seen that in the first part. But there is also a broader warning in the law of the prophets. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've warned you here in this particular book, but I've also uh, warned you throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay? Jesus is the one who has been promised. He is the root and the descendant of David. He is the promised Messiah. It is not like this is new. You've been warned again and again and again. And this is the last warning. It's kind of like you're at the airport. You know, when you hear the guy come over the intercom, this is the last and the final call to board. I mean, this is ultimately the message here and we need to respond to this last call. What, do you, what happens when the, the, that, that the guy gets on the intercom and tells, you know, Judy Brown and, you know, Mike Brown, y'all need to get to the gate because we're leaving. Man, they take off running, like with a sense of urgency, okay? This is not like, they react, okay? They wake up and react. They don't just stand there and like hang out. They get to the gate. And I know there are those who will hear this and say, yeah, but this last and final call has been out there for so long. And I just want to say, this is the wrong way to look at this, man. Guys, this is God's grace. This is his mercy. For unbelievers, it's time for those to come to him, to surrender, to repent, to believe in Jesus' work on that cross. For believers, it's time for you to examine yourself. It's time for you to tell the world about Jesus. It's time for you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you and that, and, and, and that you would pursue an upright life, that you would pursue holiness. So stop looking at unbelievers and, and pointing out all the things they're doing wrong and make sure that you know you, you love them and you share Christ with them and you share all the stuff, the knowledge and wisdom that you've received from this, this podcast and go, go tell the world about Christ. But in the meantime, be self-examined, looking in the mirror, owning who you are, right? And trust me, as I'm telling you this, I'm doing this myself. Nothing I'm telling you here, I'm not doing on my own. So I'm not just trying to preach. What I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. Trust me, I go back and listen to these, these podcasts, these episodes, sorry. I go back and listen to them. Why? Because I want to hear this. I want this to be ingrained in my mind and tattooed on my heart. Friends, we have come to the end of this book, or at least the text I wanted to cover in this season. But what is clear is this. No one can truly read this book, Revelation, and ask any questions about what it's saying. The final word is Christ will come again to win the victory, which is both 
at, at Calvary, which has already happened, and Armageddon, which is to come. It is a reminder to every Christian that no matter how bad it gets, because of Jesus' grace, we can stand and we can endure. And that is the only way we can endure. That is the only way that we can wait patiently. That is the only way that we can have hope in the midst of the struggle and chaos that we see around us on the daily. Guys, it's been a long and beautiful journey through this letter. And my prayer for you is that you would hold on to this treasure, the words and the prophecy of this book, to, to the words of our Lord Jesus. And my prayer is that you are no longer afraid of this book, but actually provoked to wake up and fight in this war against the dragon, the war that has been won, but as we live here and, and wait, we fight. It was written to encourage us, not terrify us. It was not written for us to use to predict the end. It was written so that we would receive a blessing. And what's the difference between using it and receiving it? Well, those who see it as something to be used, they try to have a newspaper in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other hand, and they use it as a tool to somehow figure out where we are and what's happening next. Guys, the book of Revelation is not meant to be used. It is meant to be received. We, we receive this word. We are encouraged by this word. This is not a map. This is not a timetable. It's not a puzzle. It's a picture book. And this picture book gives us a picture and, and images again and again and again that remind us of a few things. Number one, it reminds us that we are in the midst of a battle. We are in the midst of a war and the war is real. Ephesians 6 tells us this, we fight not against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual rulers. And we are to keep our eyes fixed on the throne of God from Revelation 4 and 5. The throne room, ultimate reality. Number two, it reminds us that Christ is victorious and will be victorious. And that he will redeem his bride. That even those who are martyred will be vindicated. And that ultimately at the end of age, Christ will come and he will set all things right. The heavens and the, and the earth will be made new. Our bodies will be made new. Everything will be made new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be consummation of our union with him. And we will see the fulfillment of man's chief end, which is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 21, 25. Its gates will never be closed. And at the end of the day, because there is no night there, there's no need to shut the gates. Guys, no one's coming. There's no one to attack. There are no enemies. And this will be forever more. Guys, this is reality for us. Revelation 22, 4 says, and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. Guys, I've been following Jesus for a while and I've rejoiced and I've wept and I've felt undone. I've felt done. I've wrestled and I've argued with him. I've never been forsaken by him. I've been protected by him. I've been defended by him. He's rescued me. He's redeemed my bloodline. He's held me fast in some very dark moments of my life. He's always right there. And I've, I've prayed prayers that if, if you only knew, they'd be embarrassing. And I've consistently fallen short of what he has for me. And still after all these years, so slow to obey. And according to this verse, I'm going to see him face to face. According to this verse, you're going to see Jesus face to face. And what we will hear is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you feel like well done at times? No, I don't. Well, guess what? No matter how we feel, we will see Jesus face to face and we will hear those words. 
Remember, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There will be no explaining yourself. There will be no lectures. There will be no rehashing of the past. We will enter into the glory of Jesus and we must live for that moment and wake up every day and understand that we're one day closer to that moment. And this should orient our Christian life. We are never defined by by our season of life. We're only defined by our identity in Christ. And don't you ever forget it. Here's the truth about how we live our life until this day. Friends, listen to me now. If you hear nothing else this whole season, hear me now. Confession and repentance. Ongoing ethics of the Christian. Progressive sanctification. Guys, pursue holiness like it is your only job. Spirit of God making us more and more like Jesus until we can see him face to face. Guys, remember Moses couldn't even see God face to face. Why? Because our human bodies can't even take it. We would probably explode. But what happens here? How can we now see Jesus? Well, it's called glorification. Resurrected bodies. Here's how we can think of the resurrected body. The imputed righteousness that is true about you spiritually actually becomes true about you physically in a way that is not true about you today. The body we have now is nothing like our resurrected body and praise God for that because this 41-year-old body is starting to break down like crazy. But the day is coming where my internal righteousness that Jesus bestowed upon me becomes physical so that I can see him. This helps me to understand Paul when he says to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is what he's saying. And will you live with this mindset? Will you live fearlessly? Will you get in this battle with me and fight Satan and work to destroy his kingdom? Guys, this is our calling. This is who we are, church. And we live this way all while knowing we serve a victorious king. And we win, even though at times it doesn't seem that way. We win. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. This is the end of season one of Straight Talk with Celine. And I thank all of you for, for listening through and staying with me. And I pray that this did something, this did something for your heart and it, it woke you up. Now I prepare for next season, which will begin in 2022. We're thinking January. Guys, we have a new baby and mama needs me to be focused on the family. And, and it's so important for me to just take time to be with them. But get ready because season two is coming. I think I'm already, I already know what, it, where, what the season's going to be about. Who is Jesus and what did, he, what did his hard teachings mean? I'm going to walk through the first promise God made to send the rescuer to redeem the world in Genesis, then the genealogies and some of the most important prophecies, and then the rescuer coming and fulfilling the prophecies. Yes, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and the impact he had on the world then and still today. And then we'll walk through all of the hard teachings of Jesus to unlock what it means for us today in our context, what it means for us as followers of Christ. That'll be season two. How many episodes? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm just going to allow the Lord to lead. Guys, again, thank you all for hanging with me for 23 weeks. It has been my pleasure to serve you all in this way. Until next time, guys, take care.
My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.